Hello readers, my name is Jason Jeffries and this is Bookin' brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guests today are Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg. They are the authors of I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad, which is published by our friends at St. Martin's Press. Baynard, Brandon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, my first question for you is, as you were writing this book, could you have imagined a more appropriate time for publication? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, uh, a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like it was going to be just completely non, uh, you know, not a thing that people were talking about, that people weren't going to be paying attention to. Uh police corruption at all and only going to be concerned about epidemiology and virology and, and uh, you know, and who knows within the couple of weeks before it comes out and you never know what people are going to be paying attention to, but we are happy to be able to, we think that Baltimore going through an uprising five years ago has a lot to say to places that are going through uprisings right now. Right. And, um, as I ask that question, I do wonder if we could have said the same any time in the last 30, 40, 50, 100 years. Uh, has corruption amongst the police historically always been a problem? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you look at the origins of policing, it sort of encourages that corruption, um, the sort of understanding that it begins with slave patrols and things like that that are controlling people and controlling certain people, not necessarily protecting and serving everyone and so I think that's very much the origins of policing and that goes very much hand in hand with corruption along with power mm-hmm. and um, and in particular the country's task force it's sort of this giving of more power to them to allegedly stop more crime in certain parts of the city, black parts of the city that only further encourage and inflate that crime they're, the crime that they're committing because at the core of it is trying to make sure that certain groups of people in Baltimore are are not are not allowed in certain places and not allowed to sort of um, you know live their lives and the task force kind of just takes that kind of intense policing to another level when they're sort of not only heavily over policing these people but also robbing them right thank you so much and um before I found this book and reached out to you to request an interview, um, this book, I Got a Monster, I started rewatching The Wire, uh, which of course shed a light on the inner workings of the Baltimore Police Department, albeit in a fictional manner, uh, as a now older television series that is still relevant in discussions of popular culture. How do you imagine The Wire will color both the reading and promotion of this book? I mean, certainly, living in Baltimore, it's something you you hear about, uh, you know, constantly from especially people who aren't here. But it, it also has affected the way that people within the city think about the city. The, the mayor, uh, at the time it was out, Martin O'Malley, hated it um, for that reason and for his sort of depiction. And, and every politician since then has, has in a way reacted to it. Uh, we were really happy that, that Dave Zirin of, of the Nation, uh, you know, said that, that our book makes uh, makes the wire look like a mother goose fairy tale. Mm-hmm. We think that that uh, I mean, I think it's a, it's really good in a lot of ways in terms of character study and stuff. But I think they're part of the story. A lot of this stuff was going on at that time, and part of the story that was missed was the way that the cops were 
in our story, we found out that the cops were the drug dealers, that in these two sides of the wire covers, and ours collapses those, um, and you see that they were actually all working together. Right. Thank you so much. And gentlemen, what is it about the city of Baltimore that inspires this level of corruption in its police force? I understand this is going on to a certain degree everywhere, but it seems to be so in Baltimore especially. Can you describe the city and its environs and maybe uh, clue us in as to how the police force has grown to be so corrupt? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the corruption ties to how the city's structured and how it's run, specifically in terms of issues of uh, segregation. Um, Baltimore is a majority black city, but it's heavily segregated with um, with black people mostly pushed, their neighborhoods pushed into the east and west side. And this is a long um, history that goes back to the early days of redlining that really allowed only black people to live in certain parts of the city and so that that deep segregation really encourages uh corruption because again as i kind of said earlier there's this idea that the police are policing certain people and sort of containing certain people and in this case that's often uh black people and poor people to sort of keep them in their place and so that poor segregation really enables police corruption on a sort of baseline level of stealing messing with people perhaps even some of the the sort of egregious but not as egregious as this book shows things that you see cops doing in the wire Um, on top of that you have some issues with our police we have a very strong police union which protects officers all the kinds of things that i think everyone's sort of more having to understand than they um, now than they maybe even did a month ago before the police killing of george floyd um we have an extremely intense law enforcement officer's bill of rights which really prevents officers from being quickly held accountable or held accountable at all and so all of that combined with sort of uh, a city that also has been struggling to re-identify itself when it comes to labor because of the, the industrialization of the city also really adds that, that corruption because we're constantly finding um, people who come in with big ideas for a harbor place or this or that to uh, develop that and that'll be the next way the city will make money because now the steel mills are gone and often those kinds of folks are, are grifters <laughs> and are often paying off politicians and those sorts of things that core kind of city in crisis mixed with a city that's maybe having a little bit on a very public facing level a perpetual sort of identity crisis really enables political corruption and then political corruption also enables police corruption i think it's also a lot harder for politicians that are crooked um to you know push the police even if they could because of course we have two the mayor when the gentry's task force uh, was in was started in the mid-2000s sheila dixon was federally indicted and then our most recent mayor catherine few was also federally indicted for corruption so we got two mayors uh kind of indicted for similar kinds of corruption wow thank you so much and um after the break we're going to dive into some more specifics of the book but first i have to ask has the coronavirus changed how you are marketing this book and if so is this something that um in some strange way has worked out i can't imagine for example that this would be an easy book to tour behind i mean the the i think it's affected the way every book is is put out you know and instead of uh 
we are looking to have some outdoor events here if if it still seems like it would be safe and responsible at that point uh following the numbers from protests closely um but it you know people browsing in bookstores the barnes and noble sales are are different than independent bookstores that that we would be going to and uh you know like yours and and talking to people aren't people aren't going to be browsing as airports those things are are have sort of gone away and at least seemingly and and so we don't really know what uh what that will look like we're looking at some of the books that are coming out now to see and and things are changing so much i mean i i had coronavirus back in march uh and was was super sick so you know take it really seriously and don't want to do anything that would endanger anyone for the promotion of a book even for a protest going out and trying to uh fight for justice fight against racism is a lot different than going out to try to sell something and so we we want to be very very mindful and very uh serious about how we think of that and not try to overstep and rush to do something just because we think it would be cool for our book so it, it has changed it quite a lot but it, we're not exactly sure yet a couple weeks out what you know this changes so fast what things will even look like at that point right thank you so much and um hey i'm glad that you have recovered and you're doing well now um Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, gentlemen. Listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg, authors of I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad, published by our friends at St. Martin's Press. So the beginning of this book is placed in the context of the police shooting of Freddie Gray. Uh, Why was this particular situation something that people felt hopeful about regarding the possibility of revolution? And how did we get from Freddie Gray to George Floyd? Um, I mean, I Got a Monster begins with the sort of uh, political uprising in Baltimore that happened after the police killing of Freddie Gray, um, where Freddie Gray was, you know, he was pulled off the street by bike cops, thrown into a van, and then somewhere along there severely injured. Some of the actually specifics of this remain uh, cloudy, which is, I think, says a lot about Baltimore transparency, that even it's hard to exactly fully articulate what happened to Freddie Gray other than we know he was uh, arrested and then died. Mm -hmm. Um, So the book starts there because it emboldened the city and its citizens to 
fight back against the kind of police corruption that had been going on for a long time. It's, I think it's important to understand, similar to, say, George Floyd in Minneapolis, that often residents are responding not only to a specific, particularly egregious death of someone in police custody, but they're kind of responding to all of them over time and sort of for reasons that are always a little bit mysterious there. This is the one that sort of made the city come out and say no. Um, at the same time, that scarce police and police claim really ruined their morale. As you're also hearing now, police saying, oh, well, if I'm going to be held accountable like this, I'm going to stop uh, doing my job. This isn't fair. Um, what happened in Baltimore was there was a certain degree of that kind of so-called police slowdown where cops, you know, sort of sat in their cars, didn't take calls, were making less arrests. But to kind of make up for that, the squads such as the Gun Trace Task Force in Baltimore were kind of doing double or triple time, which also meant they were uh, doing their job at impossibly productive rates, but productive in quotes there, because they were sort of responding to the other some other cops that weren't doing as much and were sort of going extra hard and they were really encouraged to do this to sort of provide an illusion that after an uprising Baltimore City was still sort of under control and so the, the Gun Trace Task Force begins to really use seizing guns which are sort of always used in Baltimore as hey look we seized these guns yesterday um, look we're getting guns off the street we're going to stop the violence and the task force kind of saw that as a way to game the system and gain favor and did a lot of that sort of gun grabbing which um, and the way they did that was incredibly unconstitutional was sort of rolling up on people for no reason, uh, stop people look suspicious, searching them, running out on people, throwing against the walls, all to get a gun, which they then charged that person with, and then it was put into evidence and that sort of thing. But then often what they were doing at the same time was if they found people with drugs, they were stealing those drugs and then reselling them or, or handing them off to one of their, quite a few of the drug dealers in the country. Quite a few of the cops in the Gun Trace Task Force were also drug dealers and had people in the drug trade that they were passing drugs they stole over. So so kind of in short, the uprising creates this moment of chaos and worry within city, uh, the city. In response, um, these sort of plainclothes police squads go extra hard against people all in an attempt to sort of publicly show hey, we haven't lost the fight. Police still have control of the city. And then the Gun Trace Task Force really exploited that by mixing in a way to do crimes as well. Right, and um, thank you. And Baynard, I'm going to repeat the second part of that question for you uh, to address maybe, which is how did we get from Freddie Gray to George Floyd? I mean, part of it, I think, of how we, you know, five years ago, Baltimore police killed Freddie Gray. Um, and then we have this, a couple of months ago, we have Minneapolis police killing George Floyd, and it's partly because we don't address the problems. We know the problems of policing very well, and sort of like Brandon was saying, after uh, the uprising was over, we started to immediately rush back to, oh, well, we have to give police more money. We have to embrace policing, but we'll give them more tools. And, and we thought that we acted like the problem was a technocratic problem that could be solved technocratically by giving body cameras, by having more, you know, which all of those things did was really increase police surveillance powers and increase police uh, budgets. 
and so and the way that things are localized when we talk about police so localized as well although we see that it's a huge national problem but it's like oh well that's baltimore uh that's not minneapolis oh well that's and and so people start to say that uh you know that, that it's the wire here and so we're a weird special case rather than looking at this is the kind of power we as citizens of america have given to police departments we've given them uh you know what what plato talks about as as a ring of invisibility and and it's, it was clear then and it's clear now if you give people uh absolute power it will corrupt them absolutely mm. and so i think um you know, we, we shouldn't be surprised when we see these things happening unless we're really, really willing to look at the deep-seated racism that, uh, that guides policing in this country. In a way, policing is just an extension of whiteness in that white people in, in America have typically thought that laws are supposed to protect us but not bind us. And police are the same way. They, they don't feel bound by the laws broken windows is for everybody else but if you're like hey we're going to start looking at all of your minor infractions they flip out even though that's exactly the thing they say works on everyone else for dealing with crime so i I think that there's there's really not something that we should be surprised at on the policing side but something i am surprised about is the uh you know the uprising side that we've had such an extended national uprising after the death of George Floyd is uh, really remarkable. And, and one is sort of anecdotal thing that, that we haven't really studied, but we've thought a lot about is that nationally, the unemployment level right now is about the same as it was for black Baltimore in 2015, um, around 15%. And so that's something that when people don't have to go to work in the morning, when people understand that the system isn't looking out for them and is ready to uh, extract their very health and their very lives for profit, they're much more willing to put their bodies out on the street in order to protest uh, racism and injustice. All right, thank you so much, uh, Bannard. And Brandon, um, I want to ask you about wires and wiretaps in the Baltimore Police Department. I noted one case in which a suspect was caught on a wiretap speaking about tennis shoes and Big Macs with no sauce, which was suspected code enough for the police to press RICO Act conspiracy charges. Um, Can you talk about these wiretaps and how they're used by the Baltimore Police Department? Sure. So, so I mean, what you may, what you mostly see in Baltimore, which relates to the kind of creation of this very specific country's task force unit, is uh, sort of working closely or collaborating with federal authorities. The whole concept behind the gun trace task force was that you would be kind of working in the Baltimore police, but there would also be kind of a liaison into the federal side that's also investigating things like drug dealers and guns. And so what you see with the sort of wiretaps that show up in the in the in the book, which, you know, kind of again another echo of the wire, is that um, these are often federal wiretaps or federal cases that are being worked with police. Um, What you sort of see later on is that all gets turned around because as you mentioned at the beginning of the book you have an incident with a a cocaine dealer um, that was robbed by the gun trace task force. He's robbed for hundreds of thousands of dollars and two kilograms of cocaine and so those wiretaps about that guy that are referenced are a previous case he did but it's sort of just the general way that the 
the, the these drug investigations go. The sort of re, remix of that that the Gun Trace Task Force does um, before they become the ones who are actually being wiretapped because they start committing crimes that are uh, federally on a federal level worth prosecuting um, is that the Gun Trace Task Force be, and units like that, especially the Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, start to use surveillance such as wiretaps for their own uh, benefit. So, for example, you hear early on in the book, uh, Jenkins would listen to jail calls, which is, of course, perfectly acceptable or understood that's okay. Your jail calls are recorded. They may be monitored. When you get on the phone in jail, you hear that. But then what you see in the book is how that kind of surveillance of any kind, whether it's wiretapping or um, just obtaining intelligence about so-called uh, big deal drug dealers or listening to jail calls was they were using all of that technology to gain information to not necessarily only to arrest people but also to rob them and then sometimes it's sort of only rob them. There's an example later in the book of a couple that they learned about through an informant um, and they also put a GPS tracker on the man's truck and they, they thought he was a, a gun dealer and a drug dealer and they essentially kidnapped this man and his, and his wife and took them back to their house and stole about $50,000 from him. So what the country's task force just basically does is take the kind of classic wiretap surveillance obsession of the Baltimore Police Department over the past few decades and turn it all towards criminality by then investigating the drug dealers they're supposed to be busting or the gun the shooters they're supposed to be busting and using that surveillance to gain intel on them to rob them. Right, thank you so much. And um, Baynard, my next question is about Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, uh, who operated under the following philosophy. Don't let probable cause get in the way of a good arrest. Can you explain what this philosophy means and how it was enacted by Sergeant Jenkins? Yeah, I mean, Jenkins is a, a fascinating character in the book. It, it um, and, and, and in some ways he's a problem for, uh, you know, people always talk about the bad apple kind of theory oh it's just these few bad cops and we don't believe that we think that it's as we were saying earlier a systematic thing on the other hand jenkins is an exceptionally devious uh person who's always running double crosses triple crosses uh you know tricking his own squad that he's robbing with tricking the drug dealers that he's robbing with uh but the way that he generally acted both when he was being a robber and when he was being one of the top police officers in the department was stop someone if you can make up a really good uh worthless probable cause like not wearing a seatbelt uh or tinted windows then you're covered but you know generally when you aren't afraid of lying then probable cause the whole meaning behind probable cause goes away which is that a police officer has to have a good and clear articulable reason to stop you um and and to detain you if you don't uh if you don't believe or don't bother with telling the truth then that becomes irrelevant and you know that generally the courts are going to believe you rather than the person who's arrested especially if you know that person already has a record as one of the people that he planted something on or, or allegedly planted something on uh he said you know what am i going to tell the judge this time that i didn't have it when all of the other times i had and so you know we see that in in the case that the book starts with with Ori stevenson um 
they made up a pretext for stopping him. The reason why they really stopped, one of the reasons why they really stopped him, or at least as he told his squad, was that he always stopped any black man over 18 wearing a backpack um, because it was worth searching. That's not legal probable cause, so they make up something to justify that. It turns out he was actually, had been watching and surveilling this guy for a while, so he didn't even tell his squad that. He told them one reason, they told the police another, I mean, the, the their paperwork another reason, and then the reason that he knew was that he was targeting him. And so, uh, you know, what he wanted was to get into your car, get into your pockets, get your keys, and then get into your house. Um, and if he could, then also make a big arrest. And so all of those things are uh, really boiled down into, you know, this one part of the philosophy is don't let uh, a probable cause, don't let probable cause, which is, is essential to the Constitution, get in the way of a good arrest. And he had a wide variety of ways to get around that. Um, you know, they, they had all of these tactics, one was called door pops, where they'd ride up in a car or any group of black men standing together and pop the door open as they slammed on the brakes. Whoever run, you chase them and you make up probable cause. Um, another thing called chasing ghosts, where you would call in a fake chase so someone else would go pick up, stop the person for you, um, and you would have this record that there had been a chase. So they had millions of ways to get around it, and we we've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of times in courtrooms things that we now know are lies, where judges, prosecutors believe these cops because that's what they're trained to do. Thank you so much, Bannard, and um. Finally, Brandon, we have talked a lot about the police, but we haven't spoken a lot about the flip side of the story, specifically about defense attorney Ivan Bates. Uh, can you introduce us to Ivan Bates and tell our listeners why Ivan is important to this story? Sure. So so in our book, since the cops are the robbers, the cops are the bad guys, we're kind of in this structure. We had this sort of structural issue we had to fix which is like well, what's the other side you know in a, in a true crime book you generally have the investigation into the bad guys and that's running along while the bad guys do their thing you know um and for reasons that were ideological and 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 storytelling wise we chose to rather than think about oh let's follow the fbi investigating these dirty cops we thought it was more compelling and more accurate to follow a defense attorney who was trying to get these cops um and that's because defense attorneys are kind of on the ground level when it comes to police lies because they're constant their whole job is to pick apart police version of events and try to help their clients in some way big or small and that means they're constantly running into people day in and day out um that they're that they're working for who are going to say hey the stop didn't happen this way and when you start to know these police officers you start to know their lies and that's what happened with ivan bates the first kind of case that he really started to understand jenkins as far as he was concerned was back in 2010 is a very similar case to what Boehner just described. Stop a man, get in his car, get his keys, get his license, get his info, steal anything he has, go back to his house, rob his house. Um, so I even start, saw this back in 2010 with a client. So then we start to see it again, including with the case we've talked about quite a bit here over Stevenson. He starts to realize that this is Jenkins' M.O., and so he begins to try to scoop up other other potential clients who have been messed with by Jenkins and other cops. And Ivan starts to take these cases at half price and really tries to generate this um, 
case against these cops sort of almost as like a side project while he's help fighting for people's Fourth Amendment rights. Um, and then what he starts to see is that once the FBI investigation becomes sort of in moving along with these cops, Ivan then begins assisting and providing uh, information about these dirty cops to the FBI. But what you see for a long time is Jenkins trying to outsmart Ivan Bates and many, many other lawyers like him that had similar experiences with Jenkins and other cops that kept seeing the same excuses, same lies in these probable cause statements. So the book kind of just cross-cuts between Ivan and Jenkins's um, lives during this uh, year or so where they're both uh, sort of have this fateful encounter in the justice system in which Ivan is representing a cocaine dealer that was robbed and Jenkins is trying to basically get out of it and keep his squad going. Um, and the book kind of just moves between those and, they, and then at a certain point Ivan hands that information he gleaned over to the federal authorities. Again, because it's not the lawyer's job to show that police like if you're in court with your client it doesn't really actually benefit you very much and it's not really your position to say hey this this cop is a liar or this cop stole my client's cocaine it's really your job there to get that client off so ivan sort of saw this way of helping making sure his clients who have been illegally arrested or unconstitutionally arrested were getting their, getting their day, time in court, but at the same time he started developing this dossier in his head of Jenkins cases, and that ends up really helping the FBI, and that's really not Ivan's job at all, but he becomes kind of obsessed with it. So you get to see these two people that are weird, strange rivals that know a lot about each other, whose lives somehow oftentimes parallel each other. Um, Jenkins has a child not long Jenkins' wife has a child, another child not long after Ivan and his wife had their first child. There's a couple small sort of storytelling parallels there and those similarly kind of driven. And so that becomes the kind of hook of the book is this lawyer chasing this cop instead of this cop chasing a bad guy. Thank you so much, Brandon. And thank you, gentlemen, for writing this illuminating book. Uh, I have been speaking with Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg, authors of I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad, published by our friends at St. Martin's Press. Copies of I Got a Monster can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Great to talk. Once again, I would like to thank Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg for joining me. Copies of I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please go to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get two months of audiobooks for the price of one. My name is Jason Jeffries and this is Bookin'.